Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to podcast swag, giveaways, private grief hangouts, and more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Grief Growers, I am also setting sail on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise to join me and a boatload of other grieving hearts as we travel to Haiti, Jamaica, and Mexico. Go to www.comingbackcruise.com where you can sign up to receive more information on the cruise's sail dates, grief presenters, and onboard activities. I'll see you on the open seas. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm talking to fellow grief podcaster Tara Caffell, who lost her ex-husband to suicide in 2015. That year, she also lost her grandfather, her mentor, and an old friend. Also on the show today, I'm facing my own personal blocks regarding suicide and talking about why we need to listen to people who are suicidal. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. Before we dive in, just a quick reminder that my monthly private hangout for $33 per month Patreon supporters is happening in a little less than two weeks now on Monday, June 25th at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Just so you know, I host these events once per month and they're an exclusive place for the biggest supporters of the show to get an hour's worth of one-on-one time with me every single month. So if real-time support from me is something that resonates with you, head on over to patreon.com slash Shelby for where you can pledge to support this podcast at the highest level, which is that $33 per month. When you pledge, you get instant access to all of my hidden posts on Patreon, including an access link to join this month's Google Hangout. I'm so excited to see you there on Monday, June 25th. Grief growers, it has been a hard week for me and for so many others. The suicides of Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain have brought the reality of suicide to the forefront of my brain and I'm sure so many other people's brains as well. For me, I'm coupling that all these celebrity deaths with conversing with a struggling podcast listener this week and holding space for a coworker's family member's unexpected suicide this weekend. Plus our guest today, Tara Caffell, her story contains suicide as well. So I feel like lately I've been, I've been literally marinating in the energy and the reality of suicide, conversations about suicide, the questions of why, how, for how long, that whirl around in my brain. And of course, the really big concept that I want to get to this week in regards to suicide, and that is, I don't 
understand it. I don't understand suicide grief growers. I don't. I don't understand. And being in the line of work that I am, I feel shame about it. And I feel distant from it. And it, at a certain point, I feel helpless to help. And that really sucks. And and I don't think I'm the only one here. I think this is where so many of us land with suicide, because we can all understand that it's awful. It impacts us. It totally destroys our hearts and our pictures of our idols and our friends and our acquaintances and the family that we love so much. For someone to take their own life, it's absolutely devastating. And yes, I will acknowledge a thousand percent that there is a shit ton of grief involved in suicide. But I think there's a disconnect with suicide too that doesn't exist with other forms of death. Because with suicide, there is a choice to die involved. And I think that's why I'm really tripping up with it. Because I have wanted to die. Grief growers, a few times in my life, I have wanted to die. I wanted to die when I came out of the closet in suburban North Carolina to an unreceptive family. One of my most vivid conversations with my mom after coming out, I remember her saying, just don't kill yourself over this, okay? The gist of the conversation was that we love you, but we don't support you, and we think this is wrong, and God says it's wrong, and we think you're going to burn in hell forever for being queer, and you're going to be separated from us for an eternal lifetime, but just don't kill yourself about it, okay? I wanted to die then, mostly because she was telling me not to let she and my dad's and potentially my sister's unacceptance and intolerance and withholding of major emotional support be a quote-unquote good reason for my suicide. But to me, and in that moment, in that place of not being seen by my own family, it was. And I wanted to die in a spiteful way, like a vengeful way, kind of like, I'll show you how stupid you are to be so hung up on who I have sex with. How about I kill myself? That'll teach you a lesson. But I didn't. I wanted to die again when my mom died. And that's because I felt like my body and my mind and my heart were not big enough to contain all of the pain that I was feeling. I didn't think I could carry it anymore. I really couldn't stand dealing with myself when I was alone, and I really couldn't stand dealing with other people when I was out. I felt like I was wearing an invisible mask most of the time that made me look like I was happy or productive or strong, when internally I was slowly collapsing. I felt like I was literally under the thumb of grief, just pressing down on me all the time, and I could not get out from that place. And I wanted to die because I didn't think my life would look any different than it did then. Everything felt hopeless and irreversible and painful, and I just wanted to die. But I didn't. The most recent time I wanted to die was last spring, when my fiancé at the time decided that she didn't want to be with me anymore, and in the breakup and in her anger delivered emotional blow after blow after blow after blow that literally brought me to my knees. I cried all the time. 
All of my plans of a blissful partnered future were shattered. My picture of who my fiance was as a person to me melted into distrust and rage and massive blocking off. I went into major credit card debt to try and stay afloat in my life. I couldn't seem to find a stable and well-paying job. I was also sexually assaulted very shortly after. There was a day I remember where I just came home and cranked up my music and screamed and pounded my walls and cried because I could not take it anymore. And I wanted to die then so my ex-fiance could see how awful she had been to me what her anger and rejection had turned me into. And so she would finally feel some regret or remorse for pushing me to a place of such deep despair. I wanted to die so she would feel the pain that she had caused me. But I didn't. Here's the thing, grief growers. These situations are all super common. Wanting to die out of spite or out of pain or out of revenge is super common, especially once we grow up and get a little older and recognize that killing ourselves is an option in addition to being killed by disease or old age or a car. It's kind of like, oh, I could do this myself too. Maybe I will. But here's where I feel a separation between my wanting to die and suicide. Every time I've wanted to die, the reasoning, the logic, the circumstances have all been outside of me. They've been exterior. I came out and my family was negative and unreceptive. My mom died. My fiance, who I loved with all of my heart, broke up with me. These are all situational scenarios. And they're all valid reasons to die, I guess. People have killed themselves over situational scenarios, sure. But I think what we're latching onto with suicide, especially this week, is that for so many, the desire to die is not based on outside factors. It's not situational. The desire to die is constant, and it's internal and unescapable, and it's relentless. This is what I don't understand. Grief growers, when I say I don't understand, I'm saying this is the life that I have not lived. This is the spot where my comprehension of what it's like to be suicidal ends. There's a beautiful piece that Glennon Doyle Melton shared this week about suicide. It's a piece that she wrote after Robin Williams' suicide, and It talks about how hard it is for people who do not live with the internal monsters, she calls them monsters, to understand. People who do not have these voices in their heads, reminding them constantly that they have the option to die, that it could be a great idea for them. We just don't understand. Friends that I talk to who have struggled with suicidal ideation, either recently or in the past, say that suicide is kind of like a security blanket for them, or like an emergency eject button. If life gets too dark or too hard or too painful or overwhelming, they can kill themselves. It always seems to exist as this undercurrent option. Like, well, if all else fails, you know, I could put myself out of this. Suicide is like an escape or hitting the reset button. 
And some days the voice that says, you know, you could kill yourself. That voice is stronger than on other days. And my friends are not at risk, grief growers. Most of them are in therapy or on meds and have a good support system around them, including me. But unlike me, they live with this constant thought of suicide is a viable option. And I don't know what that's like. I can't, I can't relate. I don't understand. There are entire months, even years, when the idea of killing myself never crosses my mind. But for them, it's the everyday. I, I don't know what it's like to live that life. And I'm not going to come on here today and tell you what causes suicide, guys. I can't tell you that. I'm not qualified to tell you that. I don't have enough information. I know that in losing Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain last week, we also lost about 8,000 other people who died by suicide. I know that suicide is on the rise in the United States. I know that tons and tons of articles and comment sections and all those things I tell myself I will not read when things like this happen are focusing on how can people complete suicide when they have everything. It's because suicide's not situational or based on your life circumstances. Or other articles say suicides are canaries in the coal mine for our culture and society. And sure, yeah, we do need to be way better about how we talk about suicide in our culture. And I know that tons of people the world over are confused and hurt and brokenhearted because their loved ones are choosing to die. I suppose that what I wanted to say today is that I don't understand suicide, but I want to try. Eager seems like the wrong word to use when it comes to people choosing to kill themselves, but I want to be in that space of eagerness, of learning, because I have not lived it. I haven't. I don't know what that's like. I want to hear what it's like for other people to live it. I want to listen to them. I want to walk beside them or watch them walk as best as I can, wrap my head around their reality, that killing themselves is a truly viable option. I think this is how we should operate with all grief, to seek to understand and to hold space and to be a place of reception for it, but especially with suicide, where people, especially in the media, are way too eager to blame the suicide epidemic, quote-unquote, to mental health issues that have been undiagnosed or diagnosed, or the prospect of a bleak future and being bankrupt and never finding your purpose, or addiction, or untreated illness. We say all the time in the grief recovery method that truly listening is not analyzing, or judging, or criticizing, or trying to fix. But that's exactly what so many of us try and do in suicide. If we're not personally suicidal, we need to listen to the people who are. If we're not grieving, we need to listen to the people who are. If we have not lived this experience or written this story, we need to listen to the people who are. They'll tell us what they need. And right now, And in a lot of cases, it seems like they just really need to be hard. I'm struggling. I'm great at putting on a mask, but I am struggling. I'm struggling. I have everything I could ever want. 
and I'm struggling. I'm struggling. I am untreated. There's so much wrong. I don't know which way to go. I'm struggling. I don't understand what it's like to have this monster, these thoughts, this voice always in your head. But I can listen. And I think that's that's about the best that any of us can do. If someone you love is in crisis, please call or have them call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or text the word TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741741. I would love if you'd join me this Monday, June 18th at 1 o'clock Central Time for Facebook Live where I'll be talking about why it's so hard for me and for so many others to comprehend the reality of suicide and why it's so important for all of us to listen to the people whose suicide is affecting. All you have to do is like my Facebook page, Shelby Forsythia, Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, I'm talking to Tara Caffell about the death of her ex-husband and what it was like to navigate four major losses in one year. Tara Caffell is a writer and coach who loves to explore the spaces between grief, from life, from death, from endings in general, and somewhere out there, joy. Tara is the author of the just-released book, Grief, A Love Story, and the hostess of a podcast by the same name. She lives in British Columbia with her rescue dog and her fiancé. Whenever possible, Tara is out on her road bike, in the garden, or camping where phones don't work. Tara, thank you so much for joining us on Coming Back this week. We're so stoked to have you here, not only to talk about the release of your new book, Grief, A Love Story, but to talk about your lost journey in general and how kind of what Mari Andrew calls the zigzagging path of adulthood got you to where you are today. So if you could please start us off with your lost story. It all sort of started in November of 2014. I got a, a phone call from my ex-husband who had become kind of my best friend. We, we'd been together for 14 years and apart for several. And he told me that over the weekend, he had tried to take his own life unsuccessfully, obviously. And and we agreed in that moment that I was going to be um, his family, I think. And I, I said, I, I love you and I'm, I'm really worried and I want you to know that I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. I'm your person. I still am. And uh, his partner of several years had walked out the door and not really given him much explanation. So he was left lost and really heartbroken and really, really broken. And so over the next few months, he, he got better. He got a lot better. And then he ran into her and he got a lot worse really quickly. And in those months, I, I got really um, used to living a life on the edge of pretty big loss. Um, one of my good friends said, of him, of my ex, that he was in it to win it. When we talked about suicide, she had a feeling that he was just going to succeed. And the more I know of him now, the more I know that, that that's probably true. I think it was always 
and uh, um, how should I say a an option for him for most of his life. It was an option, and and it happened. So. So this was 2015. I lost him in May. I had lost my grandfather in March of that year. And as I fuddled through and muddled through, I then found out that one of my mentors and teachers who I treasured had died very suddenly. And at the end of the year, when I was sort of rocking in the corner from it all, um, I heard that a very, very old friend of mine had died of cancer in hospice. So by the end of the year, I was lost and trying to make sense of it. And, and, and that's kind of where it all began was being at the bottom of that barrel on my knees and trying to heal. That sounds like you literally got slammed from all sides, from all types of relationships, from all forms of loss. And I know a lot of my grief growers have asked me in the past, how do I cope with cumulative loss, this loss that just builds up over time, or feeling like you're just getting pummeled by a grief storm. I, I mean, there's no other words for it, really. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your your first instinct in these moments? Well, I was, I was very lucky, I think, um, in the support I had around me. Of course, I'm a coach, so I'm surrounded by all these coachy people who can't help themselves. <laughs> coachy <laughs> people. Right? And uh, so I had a lot of support. I had a lot of people asking the good questions and and keeping me going and checking in with me and, and keeping an eye on me. Um, I think one of the things that really saved me was was the concept of surrendering to what was happening. And instead of um, bracing myself. Um, cause if you think of like a car accident, right, if you know, it's coming, you brace yourself and you actually get more hurt. And so when I just slowed down and, and surrendered into whatever was showing up that day, it, it helped, it helped me to roll with it a little more. Um, and not to say it was really easy in any stretch. But once I had that philosophy that I, I knew I needed to be so gentle with myself and, and to make space for whatever and however it showed up, um, it, it did give it some ease. Um, I am one of these people though, who is, I'm like relentlessly, um, resilient almost to a fault. I, I grew up in a house with an alcoholic um, my father. And, and so I always had to be okay. I always had to kind of bounce back up. And I picture myself as one of those blow up punching clowns that we have as kids, right? With sand in the bottom and you punch mm-hmm. them and they go down and they pop right back up. And that's how I always felt was I'd be like, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I am relentlessly upright. And I, I know now that I, I should have, and I wish I had, fallen even further, right? Like really let it not be okay. I didn't learn that until much, much into it. Um, uh, cause I lived alone and I had a dog and I kept saying, well, somebody has to walk my dog. Somebody has to get up for the dog. <laughs> and one of my best friends said, I would have walked your goddamn dog. Right. She <laughs> said, you know, you could have not shown up for life for a while. You could have crumbled. And I didn't really 
know that until later on. And now I know, and luckily I don't have to feel like I need to crumble now, but I, I know I could have. So it's a messy answer. I think I gave it permission to be super messy and to, like I often told people if they took me out for dinner or invited me over for dinner that all they were to do was prop me up in the corner and give me a glass of wine and just let me be because I didn't want to talk to anyone and I didn't want to be sociable. I'm an introverted sort to begin with. So um, people's company wore, th- wore thin about 30 minutes into the interaction. <laughs> so yeah, prop me up, um, know that I might just start crying in the middle of dinner and and that's okay. Grief just gets to be here past the potatoes, right? I like how you phrase that. And I'm I'm curious about where this, um, how should I phrase it, like a disclaimer came from? Because it sounds like after a bit, you had something kind of rehearsed. Like if you're going to go out with me, you know, <laughs> give me a glass of wine, prop me up in the corner. I can handle about 30 minutes of you or anyone, not <laughs> yeah. you personally, but anyone. Uh, and then just know that grief is going to show up. So is that, is that a script maybe that you've used before in other situations before 2015 or something you developed yourself or heard from someone else or where did that come from? I first noticed it when I was getting divorced. Um, Hmm. We separated in the fall of 2010 and, (laughs) and my, and Brian, my husband at the time, he took off for a couple of weeks on a vacation with some friends. And so I was home alone in our new home with, um, you know, I'd light a fire. And I remember going to the grocery store one day and buying Halloween candy to have it be dinner. I remember that. I remember like on purpose going to the store and picking out bags of Halloween candy because that was going to be my dinner on purpose. It was funny. And, And friends would invite me out. They knew that I was going through this huge, horrible thing that we were splitting up and we were finally public about something that was very, very painful for a long time when we both sort of called it quits and decided it was done and that we were broken and we needed to just be apart. And, and I started noticing that this grief was with me all the time, right? I would be in my office. I had a, a day job at the time. And I remember the warehouse manager came in my office and, and I'm just crying at my desk. And he went, Oh, do you want me to come back? And, you know, started to walk backwards out of my office. And I said, no, no, it's okay. What do you need? And (laughs) You know, I'm functional. I'm just crying. It's fine. (laughs) I wiped my eyes and I sniffled and I said, bring it on over. And I had to sign a paper for him. And, and, and I realized that that grief was going to be interwoven. And so I just started warning people, right? We go out for dinner. I'd say, you know, you just never know what you're going to get. I may laugh, I may cry, there might be me making notes about what we talk about. Just just go with it. And I think I giving myself permission, I I allowed other people to make space for however I was showing up because it needed to be authentic. So I learned that early on and I think I just kept going with it with that knowledge that sometimes it's going to be ugly cry <laughs> in the middle of a restaurant. <laughs> well, and sometimes you just post up the disclaimer and you're like, well, now, you know, so if something goes weird or, or crazy, or you don't think you can handle it, I, tr- I tried to warn you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's really good advice. Cause a lot of, uh, a lot of folks I speak to, especially listeners of this show, they're like, people don't know how to handle me anymore. And it sucks that we as grievers 
have to do some of our own legwork to get there. And people don't just know that this is how it is after loss, but being able to put words to it, I'm calling it a disclaimer. You could call it whatever you want to. Um, and these situations I think could be really helpful. I want to switch gears for a moment and, and move back into the manner in which your ex-husband died, because it sounded like you had both this spoken and like an energetic contract almost of being his, his keeper, his caretaker, his, like, I am watching over you. And how did it feel when he finally completed suicide? Because I know there's guilt and survivor's guilt and all this stuff already with involved with suicide, but especially with this kind of pact that it sounds like you made kind of, where was your heart sitting in all of this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I think that the day it happened, I was ironically, <laughs> as I'm on a podcast right now, I was on a podcast. Uh, I was on a live broadcast with a partner of mine who was living in Bogota, Colombia, of all places. And we were interviewing somebody. And Brian phoned me, oh, like 10 minutes before we went live. And I answered the phone. And he, I said, what's up? Are you okay? And he said, I just ran into her. And I said, oh, honey. Are you are you going to be okay for? I'm just about to get on the, on the air. Can you wait an hour? He said, "Yeah, of course, no problem. I'm cool." Hung up the phone, and I get on the radio show. Um, we lost Wi-Fi. Our guest lost power. Everything went wrong in the first ten minutes of the show. We finally got on the show. We did the interview. It went well. And at the end of it, I said, "I have to go. I got to go check on Brian. I'm not sure what's going on." So I got off the call and then I tried to call him and I called him probably 12 times and, and I texted and I texted and nothing was happening. And I think in that moment I knew, I did, I knew immediately that he was gone. I just knew. And, and I think that's what happened in the, in the beginning of the show was there was some energetic messiness to keep me busy, to keep me occupied so that I wasn't worrying, but I think that's when it happened. And so, right. (laughs) And then unable to reach him, I called his, the woman, he had just started dating a few months earlier when he was feeling great. And, and I said, have you heard from him? And she said, no, I went rock climbing and I didn't take my phone. She goes, I never don't take my phone, man. I didn't take it. So she has a lot of guilt still, I think. And a lot, um, a different experience of that. Um, I won't say what her experience is, but it is different than mine. And so I loaded the dog in the car and I said, I'll be, I'm on my way to pick her up. And we went screaming into the city. Uh, Brian lived about a half hour away or 25 minutes. And on the way, she called 911 and said what we thought had happened. And they kept us on the line and so on. So when we got to his, apartment building, fire, police, ambulance, everybody was there. They kept us out of the building and they were working on him for about 45 minutes. And then the paramedics came down and the police told us that they had been unsuccessful in reviving him. You know, they're so diplomatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so I remember shaking the paramedic's hand and as he explained what they had done. And I said, thank you. 
that can't have been easy for you to walk in to find someone who is gone and and have to do that. And then I was just sort of in shock for the night. I think I was, I knew some, my, my good friend came to pick up my dog and he was gone for the night and I didn't have to worry about him. And I made my way to a very good friend of mine to spend the night at his house because I didn't want to be alone. And I think that, especially in the weeks after the reading I did, the the work I did with spiritual advisors that I have, I knew that somehow on a soul level of some kind that there was nothing I could do to stop him. And that even if I had been able to get there that night, I wouldn't have been able to stop him later. Like this was a thing he was going to do. And that helped me to make peace with it pretty quickly. And I'm still, you know, grief is grief. It comes and goes. And on an, uh, on an idle Tuesday, I'll get really pissed about it sometimes. Or in traffic, I will get overcome by the unfairness of it and the what if of it. Um, but I do know we had, we had really had a lot of conversations about being family and about being so, um, tightly connected. And, and I know that that was something that he cherished. I know that. Um, and obviously I did too. That's incredible. And such a different way to reframe suicide, which I really like, um, not necessarily that I like suicide, but like the thought that you've put into it on your side of the conversation. It's so easy with losses like this, especially or anywhere guilt or, or, you know, it could have been my what ifs or things like that are involved. There's a lot of what I like to call mind circling involved where we just Mm -hmm. ruminate on the same thing over and over again. And we like beat ourselves up or, it is. It is the what ifs that sit in our brain. And it sounds like these have, they've not gone away because grief is grief. But in your own way, in your own story, this has, it sounds like this has found its place for you. Yeah. Yeah. I think it has. Um, I think he said a lot of what he needed to say to me and, and I to him. Um, and we have an ongoing conversation, right? He's, he was always a cyclist. Um, and it was something we never did together because I was intimidated by him. He would, he was a semi-pro cyclist when he was a lot younger. And, and so I always thought, oh gosh, he will laugh at me. He will think I'm, you know, this (laughs) doughy girl behind him trying to keep keep up. (laughs) And so I never wanted to do it with him, even though I think we would have enjoyed it a lot. And, and so the year, the, on the anniversary, the first anniversary of his death, I bought a road bike and her name is Ruby and she is red and I love her and I ride her all the time. And Brian is always with me. Um, I think he likes the human experience of the hair blowing in the wind I think he loves to be in my body with me and he kind of joins me. I know it sounds a little nutty, but it, it works for me. Um, so I spent a lot of time to hit with him and, and I talked to him. And so we've made some peace around that. And I know he, he says that, you know, I'm sorry that I did it this way. 
I, I hate that I caused everyone all this pain and I shouldn't have done it. It was a quick decision, but I did it. And yeah, I, yeah, I've made some peace. I want to carry this conversation into where we carry our loved ones in our bodies, because that was really interesting to me. And that's something that I do as well. I tell people my mom is always on my left shoulder or in my, my, my left body. I'm not sure how else to describe it, but um, she was left-handed and I adored her handwriting and everything about her. And when she comes to visit me, especially when I'm making decisions or telling a funny story about her, et cetera, you know, I'll get chills or I'll get like movement or some kind of tingling in my left shoulder. And even sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I'll look over my left shoulder to like see if her energy is coming with almost like I'm waiting for like, it looks like I'm, I'm watching an invisible dog follow me down the street is what it looks like. Um, but that's so mm-hmm. fascinating that you take him with you on, on these bike rides on these, you know, cycling trips. And this is, this is your time for, him to return to you in a way. And I'm wondering if the other people that you've lost within that year or outside of 2015 have accompanied you in some physical way forward. Yes. It's crazy. (laughs) The fact that that was whispered a little bit, cause it's a little creepy, but it's really cool. Yeah. My grandpa was very, um, my grandpa was a man's man who loved hunting and being outside and hiking and fishing and all that stuff. And at his funeral was the moment when I went, oh, that's why I love this stuff. And I started giving myself permission to love being outside, right? And, And so when I'm outside, I'm with my grandpa, especially in the garden. Um, when I'm pulling weeds, he's just with me. Um, yeah, and other times, but that's kind of the main one is is he's with me on hikes for sure. And sometimes my grandmother, who's also passed, um, I did the West Coast Trail in 2016, which is about a 75-kilometer trail on the west coast of British Columbia. It's pretty treacherous. Like you start and you have to finish. Uh, the only way off is to be airlifted because you are very seriously hurt. And even then you have to get to a point of extraction. And so I did this trail – And for some of it, it's quite wet in places because it's in a rainforest and you have to walk along these sort of 50 foot overturned logs with a 40 pound pack on your pack on your back and, you know, try not to fall and kill yourself basically. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and I would channel my grandma on every one of them because she always walked very slowly, very carefully, even on solid ground. And so I would just say, I need to find my extra bravery everybody wait. <laughs> and I, I need to do this slowly. And she was with me every step. So there are moments that I bring her in for sure. Um, there are moments, uh, the last friend who died in, in December, whenever I'm at hospice, I hear him because that's where he died, not this specific hospice, but that's, I remember my interview when I went to become a volunteer I parked outside and I was getting my stuff together in the car and I heard him in my head say, thank you for doing this. And it's just like you, I, I get this wave of like, I know they're here when I get tears or I get shivers or, I, and I just can't seem to stop it. Right. This heat through my face runs through. And so, yeah, they, they're all with me. Um, 
at different times, depending on what I'm doing or what I'm touching. But it's just a glimmer of, at a girl. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Kind of thing. I like that energy. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, how do you normally call people into your space? For grief growers that have never tried this or heard about this before, how do you kind of summon your loved ones into your physical space? Or do they just show up? Do they surprise you? Sometimes they just show up. Um, but I do call the, I have a little altar it for my ancestors. Um, cause I've done some work about sitting with them and giving them offerings and lighting a candle and they don't hang out there a ton. <laughs> they just kind of follow me wherever I am. So sometimes I will ask them to come in and it's literally before I make the request, I can feel them. And then sometimes they'll come and I say, you know what? I need to go to sleep right now. Can you come in the morning? So I've, I've made specific requests of their energy because sometimes they take up a lot of space and I need to get to sleep <laughs> and I don't have time for that. <laughs> um, but I did make a deal in the very, very beginning that I said, you know, these, these energies and this, this information that's coming through, I will make space for, for you. I will be quiet. I will have silence. I will have my book open so I can write down what you say. I will listen. And so I just noticed that when a a thought pops in my head, uh, and it often feels kind of playful or like I'm talking to myself somehow, that that's who it is. Um, Like on my bike rides, I am often a lot faster than Bill, my partner. And we joke about it because I don't know what it is. I got a big butt and I got like, muscly legs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so We're in that same boat together. I always, say I'm, <laughs> I always say I'm built to be faster at this, right? I'm a powerhouse, especially on hills and so on. And I also have a nicer bike. So I beat him all the time. And every time I am in the lead and I'm just in the groove and I'm going, I can hear Brian going, that's it. You got it. You are awesome at this. And, and it's not something I would say to myself. He just pipes in. So So it's a combination. They show up and I also ask them. I think it's just tuning into it and and accepting that I live a guided life that is endlessly oracular. I get to listen all the time. I love that phrase, living a guided life. Because in my belief system, we all are guided, but we have to walk in ready to sit with that silence, ready to make space for it. So many times we want to fill it up with something or fear that if we are sitting in silence that nothing is happening. Um, But especially after grief, we need to put ourselves into these spaces of being able to receive, not just constant output. I agree. I agree. Um, The most amazing moments of the last three years have been when I have created silence and space, when I have retreated from my life. Um, and I try and make regular time for that to happen, right? Where I go to a cabin for a couple nights or I, you know, go to a silent retreat or, you know, and I just let things flood in by purposely creating a vacuum for it and a play space for, for these conversations to occur. It's perfect. And it's such a fitting way to do it as well. I want to introduce a question that I wrote down 
as you were answering the first question, um, because it just popped in my brain. I was like, okay, somebody needs to hear the answer to this today. Um, and the question is, how can we prevent ourselves from in defining entire years or entire seasons of our lives as bad? Because it sounds like 2015 just totally chewed you up and spit you out and then chewed you up again and spit you out again. And there's such a temptation. I do this in my work too. I define my entire college experience as the four years of hell because my dad almost died for two years and then my mom did die in two years. And it was it was hell. But I mean, there's pockets of light, of course, because we all live whole lives that are not without their good bits. But it's so tempting, and I am guilty of this in my own work too, of defining an entire season of my life as bad or hellacious or terrible. Right. Uh, that's such a good question. And I have a really layered up answer. Let's hear so, it. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think it really started when I realized how much I love Mondays. Um, like I came back from a retreat and I was living this sort of themed thing about, you know, where is the ease? I was looking for it all. And, and I realized how much I love Mondays. I think, cause I got back from a weekend away and I gave myself Monday to slop around in my pajamas and my slippers and drink lots of tea and get ready for the week. And that has been my practice now ever since I don't schedule things on Mondays unless I absolutely have to. And it means that I love Mondays and I'm, I'm a big minority, <laughs> but I realized, you know, if you hate Mondays, it means you hate a seventh of your life. So yes, I love Mondays and I started to design my time around that. And I, I, and at the same time, I realized that in grief, there is also joy. There always is that there's a duality of yes, and it's both of these. That I can miss someone with every drop of blood in my body and be lost. And I can also be so grateful that I knew them. And that as I clean out their house, I find something hilarious that I actually get to laugh about. And right, these, these coexist. They just do. And because, you know, you've been to a funeral where somebody says something really, really funny about the dead person because they were, you know, maybe they were a hoarder or they they said awful things about other people, <laughs> right? There's always, it's, they're interlaced together. They live together. And, and then the third piece of it is I realized that I make up meaning about what happens to me. And what happens to me doesn't know that it's supposed to be good or bad. It's just a thing that's happening. Um, I, I spoke with a client, for instance, whose, whose wife had been unfaithful. And they were working through that. They were, yeah, they were working through that. And I said to him, consider that what happened is two people had sex. The meaning of that is that they were not supposed to. The meaning is that it was a betrayal. The meaning is so many things. But at the bottom of it all, two people had sex. And we call that whatever we wish. Good, bad, ugly, something else. 
And I think the same is true for everything that happens to us. You know, we can have a flat tire and all it means is that our tire ran out of air. It's not that we're having a terrible day, right? We don't need to make that up about it. Um, The same is true with death that yes, all these people left (laughs) in that year And even early into the next year, I lost my dog, I lost my car, everything died that I knew from my previous life. And instead of making that be, quote, bad, I decided to ask different questions. Like, why did this happen? What's here for me? What am I supposed to learn about this brand new life without all of these people that I loved? I don't get it. Tell me. And it opened me up for more possibility than sitting in, in, um, labeling it as bad things happened. Things happened. That's what I came to good things and bad things, but they were just things they happened. I love that response. And I love all the layers that come with it. I think that's so perfect. Mm -hmm. And I've been challenged to think about it that way in my own grief as well. And I've even been the person to challenge others to think that way as well, where I was like, what if this is something that just happened? And it's so hard to say that when it's, you know, the death of your partner or former partner, or, you know, your best friend gets diagnosed with cancer, or all of a sudden you get served divorce papers when you weren't expecting it, or you lose a child. Like, what if that's something that just happens? Like, that's almost an insult to people that are grieving. And this is why we have to be the people to decide when we start absorbing perspective and what that perspective looks like. I mean, this is kind of why people can't show up and start prescribing you ways to deal with your grief. You kind of have to go out and, and choose your own and have the conversations yourself and discover the tools and or create the tools uh, yourself. But I think that's really powerful. And it, the first step in it was if I hate Mondays, I hate a seventh of my life. I've never heard that before, but I absolutely love it. And you're so right that you start excluding so much of your time on this earth when you start labeling such big chunks of it as bad. Um, there's there's resistance there. You're right. This this is incorporated with that surrender idea that you talked about earlier. Yeah, and I also learned a long time ago that I I'm not here for people to not have resistance about what I say. Um, like the book, there will be moments of the book where people go, Oh, I can't believe you said that, but it's stuff that needs to be said. And I'm okay with saying it. I'm okay with not being liked. I'm okay with somebody slamming the book down and being pissed off at me. I'm okay with that. Um, I think some of this truth needs to be set free, um, so that we can think a little differently, perhaps. And it might not be in that moment that people are reading the book and they've slammed it down. And maybe it's a month later when they realize, oh, yeah, this is just a thing that's happening. And it sucks, but it doesn't have to be the worst thing. I don't have to label it. Yeah, you don't have to label it. You did just mention your book. So I want to get into, well, first I want to get into the title because you call it Grief, A Love Story. And that is not what anybody I know would want to label their grief, much less think to label their grief, especially if they're going to write a book about it. Um, So I want to know where the title came from first, but also 
you know, what your book is about, kind of the structure of it and what people can expect by cracking it open and how it relates to your podcast of the same name. So a lot of questions all lumped in there, but tell us about your book. That's the shortest question. (laughs) Uh, So grief on love story. Uh, I I was going to call it something about dancing with grief um, because it feels like it's an an interplay. Um, And I know that I have come to to love my grief, not to love that the people who died, died. Of course not. You know, I would, obviously, <laughs> but I, I, I actually love the learning and I love where it sent me. And I love the questions I got to ask and the curiosity I got to put on. And, um, like I, the spring after this all happened, the, two days before I was going to put my dog to sleep, actually, it was kind of a crazy weekend. I was at a retreat and I was in a labyrinth in silence for a couple of hours. And I'm walking through the labyrinth and I've been writing, but it's not a book yet. And these four guys showed up, the four men who all died that year, they were in my head with me and they were saying, it's time to actually take on a big life, Tara, and stop paying, playing lip service to it. Like, it's time. And why do you think we all left at once? Oh like, that word. really, like, it's, it, it hit me like a gravel truck. And, and at first I thought, who am I to think that these men died for me? And the answer of it, I think, is that every death is for a thousand reasons, and I was one of them. And if I wanted to take their four departures as some kind of push and some kind of inspiration and some kind of a question, then I could. And of course I did. And so I, I have, I, I do not have any love for the moments that those men left my life and I found out about it, right? It was, mm, there's so much there. There's so much, you know, why didn't I talk to them more? Or why didn't we have this kind of, right? There's grief there too. Um, but I, I love every moment of learning since. I love the questions and I love where I've gotten to land and the way that I look at life now that I know what my grief looks like and that I've danced with it so much. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then the book came from that emotion, that idea of dancing with grief or even reframing grief as something that could be developed as a love story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to more of less than less of a romantic love, but more of a, let's just love, love. Um, it kind of hit me a few days after Brian died. I was with a friend of mine and I was one of my sort of advisors I met with. And, and I said, I'm really noticing the exquisite way that people are carrying me and holding me that I can be in a Starbucks and I can start crying and people will look over at me and they will politely and sweetly hold me without speaking to me. And they will make sure that I stay upright somehow. And I said, I feel like when we are in grief, when we are mourning, we are held in such a beautiful way by the people around us. 
And then I realized, oh, we are in grief all the time and we should be holding each other as such. And so the book is about the the grief of death, obviously. Um, and that is the gr- that's the devil that we know, right? That we have a picture for what that looks like. We are wearing black. We are at a funeral. We are graveside. We are surrounded by family, right? We're doing the things that look like death. And then there's grief from all these other places that you don't really expect or or look for. Um, like there is grief. When you have your last baby and realize that these are the last lasts that are going to happen. These are the last first steps. And this is the last potty training, that kind of thing. There is grief when you get married over the life that is gone and and the maidenhood or the the way it used to be. There is grief when the baby arrives for a litany of things that are no longer right? Your, your lack of responsibility, your body is completely different. Everything shifts. And these are all endings. Um, like the city that I live in now, I moved here last year, just over a year ago. And you better believe there was grief when we got here because, you know, I'd left behind a life. I'd left behind friends. And as happy as I was to go, I was in this new place and I didn't have the community that I used to. And all I could think of was that the memories of the people who had died, I had left in my old city and I was worried I didn't bring them with me, right? So with every beginning and ending, there is grief. And so that's what the chapters of the book are. Um, a big section is about the grief of death and, and how that looks and what, and what it looks like. Uh, a sort of an exploration of that and the grief that that shows up and how uncomfortable everybody is with it. And then there's the grief of life. And that is the beginnings and endings that we all have. Um, and then the final section is sort of some tools. And it's not how to be with your grief, but it is kind of how to be with your <laughs> grief. It's, it's, it's what, what might work, what might, and, and it's tools like, let's be compassionate. Instead of automatically saying, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss and looking away and not knowing how to talk about it. What if instead we say, tell me about that person that you lost. Tell me about them. What was his name? Right? To invite conversation and invite this to be something that lives and, and gets to be a love story among the humans that are still here. I think we forget that we have that power. Uh, this is very cool. Yeah. So tell us maybe what the biggest thing was that you have learned thus far from your grief journey or what helped you come back. I can probably pinpoint it to a book. Um, <laughs> it had been recommended to me and I remember scoffing at it at the time. I think I don't know, remember why. (laughs) And then I was on a a 14 hour drive and I got one of those, you know, audio book things of this book. And it's called The Surrender Experiment by Michael A. Singer. And for the first half hour, I was pissed off. I I I had so much resistance. It was weird. And then I sunk into it and I realized, oh, I needed to hear this book. And 
And it is just um, the idea of surrender, the idea of, of like actively surrendering to what is coming, to what you are here to learn, to, to the gifts, to receiving them. Um, that became a really powerful idea for me. And I've noticed that in my life, this feels like, oh, this is a lesson you're supposed to keep getting. I get it. Okay. And it's about surrender and not being in control and letting myself get out of the way. It was really powerful. And yeah, one of those moments. What if we stopped moving, stopped running, stopped labeling it as bad? Yeah. Oh, man. Thank you. I haven't heard of that book yet. I'm very excited to pick that one up. It's a good one. <laughs> I can see myself, though, like having the initial bristling. I'm like, I don't know if I want to read this. <laughs> so I can definitely see that for you, too. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So tell us, Tara, before we go off the air today, where people can find your book, get in touch with you for both coaching and just in general to follow your your wisdom on grief and your wisdom on surrender as well. Ah, yes. Uh, so my website, TaraCafel.com is kind of the best way to find me for any reason. You can always contact through there and then there's links to everything else. I think, you know, all the other social media places where we appear. Um, there is a grief, a love story group on Facebook, which I love to hang out in. Um, and we, you know, we share articles, we talk about this stuff. It's, kind of a yummy space. I think you agree with me that, that this is a, a, a really juicy topic and, and one that we feel comfortable playing in. So I think that we should, right. And, and so I love being there. And then of course, yes, the book, um, <laughs> the book is on Publishizer, which is a, um, like a crowdfunding thing for books. Who knew this existed? So you, I've put up a proposal there, and if if you want to go check that out, I've got some cool bonuses, including signed copies of the book and imaginary puppies, obviously. Uh, so do go there. It's uh, publishizer.com forward slash grief a love story. You should be able to search for it there. Yeah. So lovely, and thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so thrilled for the launch of your book, for these words to be out in the world and for this reframing to be out in the world. I think it would serve us all well to, to get a really good grasp on that, to hear that. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was such a joy. Oh, thank you, Shelby. I, mm, it was yummy. Thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to fellow grief podcaster Tara Cafell for joining me from BC to talk about your losses and your new book, Grief, A Love Story. Tara came back by channeling her loved ones in her body and through quiet vacuums of space, also by reading the book The Surrender Experiment by Michael H. Singer. You can find a link to Tara's coaching practice and book, Grief, A Love Story, in the show notes. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, June 18th at 1 o'clock Central Time, where we'll talk about suicide and why we need to listen to the people that suicide is affecting. Come sail away with me on the 2019 Bereavement Cruise by requesting more information at www.comingbackcruise.com. 
Thank you so much to Ellen this week who pledged to support the show every single month. If this show has changed the way you see grief and loss, please go to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and get some very cool podcast rewards for doing so. If you liked what you heard today, you can also support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and by telling a friend about coming back because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia, Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.